Hey, it's Dallas, and I have a question for you. But first, let's pretend that you work for a large nonprofit organization, and you're, let's say, the director of new donor acquisition, and it's your job to rally an internal team to go out and raise as many donations as possible for your organization's cause. The team that you oversee is directly responsible for going door-to-door to ask people to donate to your organization. And because you oversee a team of some of the most important individuals of a nonprofit, which is the new donor acquisition team, you're paid a bonus of up to 5% of the total donation amount your team raises. And as a tool to incentivize your team to perform at a higher level, hopefully acquiring more donations, you can incentivize your team members by giving them a 1% bonus of the total donation amount they raise. But this 1% incentive will be paid out of your 5% bonus. Or you can just keep the 5% bonus to yourself. Obviously, what you're trying to figure out right now is if giving a 1% incentive to your team will result in them actually working harder, performing better, generating more overall donations, so that your remaining 4% bonus ends up being greater than the 5% bonus you could have received had you not given 1% to your team. Oh, and ideally that 1% incentive given to your team and the potential increase in performance will lead to more donations for the charity. You didn't forget about the charity, did you? So anyway, that's the question. What do you do? Do you keep your 5% bonus to yourself or do you shave off 1%, give it to your team, incentivizing them to perform at a higher level, hoping that it leads to an overall increase in donation volume. Take a second and consider it. Okay, so I'm guessing you decided to be the good boss that you are and give your team the 1% bonus incentive. In fact, 76% of managers chose to incentivize their team this way. But when you compare these two groups, the donor acquisition teams with no additional performance incentive, and the teams that had a 1% bonus incentive tied to their performance, the teams who were incentivized to perform at a higher level actually underperformed when compared to the non-incentivized groups. And by a pretty significant amount, and every single time this was tested, even when the team's bonus incentive was raised all the way up to 10% of all donations raised, they still underperformed compared to the non-incentivized teams. That just doesn't feel like it makes sense, right? Like, you're probably saying to yourself that if you had a performance incentive dangled in front of you, in this case it's monetary, you'd obviously do a better job. You'd maybe work a little harder, be a little bit more persistent, you wouldn't take no for an answer quite so easily, and ultimately you'd get a better result, right? But that's actually not what the research shows, and there's lots of research on this topic. So if that's not what the research shows, then what's going on here? How is it possible that adding a performance incentive can actually result in a negative impact on the overall performance? Well, it's actually not as complicated as it sounds. So let's take a quick break, and then we'll dive in. This is Dallas McLaughlin, and you're listening to Unconsidered, the podcast where we get inside the mind of the modern entrepreneur, business owner, and marketer. We, for lack of a better word, is good. If you don't know which door to open, always account for variable change. There is a zero percent chance. You dropped 150 grand on a fucking education, could have got for a dollar fifty in late charges. Tell me something I don't already know. Come on, we just made the deal of our lifetimes. We should celebrate. We are in a completely fraudulent system. It's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a 
fairy dust. It doesn't exist. The question I opened this episode with is based on just one of the experiments conducted by Uri Nisi and Aldo Rusticini in their paper titled, and possible spoiler alert here, Pay Enough or Don't Pay at All. In this specific study, they divided teams into two groups. Each group was told they'd need to go door-to-door to solicit donations for a charity. The first group, the control group, was given nothing more than a motivational speech about the value of the work they were about to go do, and then they were sent on their way. The second group, which was the experimental group, was given the very same motivational speech about the value of the work they were going to do, and then they were informed that they'd receive a bonus of 1% of the total donation amount that they raised. Now get this, over 500 members, the average amount raised by the non-incentive members was $239, and the non-incentivized group, $153, a 36% decrease in performance. A little surprised, Nisi and Rusticini kept testing this, and they kept getting similar results. So they added a third group. They gave them the very same motivational speech, but this time they told them they'd received 10% of the total donations raised. And the average donation amount? Only $219. So that's higher than the 1% incentive group, but it's still worse than the group that wasn't incentivized at all. And this study is just one example of how monetary incentives can actually act as a demotivator. In this case, it's undermining the value of the work the donation raisers are about to go do by applying a commission structure. And it shows how incentives can actually reduce overall performance. And there's a lot of other research out there that supports this. For example, in another famous experiment, one of the earliest on the subject, it was done by Edward Dietschy in 1971. In this study, Dietschy divided his respondents into two groups, the control group and the experimental group. Each group was given a soma cube, which is one of those wooden Tetris-like blocks that can be assembled in a bunch of different ways, 240 different ways to be exact. In the first session, both groups were told the same thing. Find as many solutions to the puzzle as you can within the eight-minute period. Neither group was incentivized, and neither knew that they'd be incentivized at a later stage. The results from this session acted as the baseline. In the second session, the control group was given the exact same task. Find as many solutions in eight minutes as possible. But the experimental group was told that they'd be paid $1 for every solution they were able to find during the second session's time limit. Now what's different here is where Nisi and Rusticini were purely measuring output, which was the amount of donations received, Dietschy had an additional layer in his study which measured effort or interest, which was the time spent actually working on the puzzle. What Dietschy found did vary slightly from Nisi and Rusticini. Dietschy found that when the monetary incentive was introduced, the experimental group did in fact work harder by spending 26% more time working on the puzzle when they were being paid to find solutions. But just like Nisi and Rusticini's studies, the incentivized group underperformed. They actually found less solutions to the puzzle than the non-incentivized group. And not only did they find less solutions than the non-incentivized group, they found less solutions the second time around than they themselves found in the first session when they weren't being incentivized. Adding the monetary incentive resulted in this group spending more time to achieve a worse result. But Dietschy wasn't done there. At the end of the second session, Dietschy told each respondent, time's up, put the cubes down, the study's over. Then he left the room under the guise that he had to go get a notepad for a post-study survey. But unknown to the respondents, this actually started a secret third session, also lasting eight minutes. 
So as DG continued to monitor these two groups, he found the control group, the group who was never incentivized to work on the puzzle in either of the previous two sessions, actually picked the puzzle back up. And not only did they pick it back up, they actually spent 17% more time working on it in the third session than they did in the second session. They actually put more time in outside of the time study than they did during the time study. This group wanted to keep working on the puzzle. They were interested in it. They wanted to find more solutions. On the other hand, the experimental group in this third secret session, when they thought the research was done and their $1 per solution incentive was removed, their motivation to pick the puzzle back up and try to find more solutions was gone. They didn't go back to the puzzle. Instead, they played with some of the other stuff on the table, they picked up some magazines, and they basically just waited for Dietschy to return. Without the reward, they didn't care about finding more solutions. Their interest in the puzzle was gone. And this is kind of that first example of no pay, no play. And these studies show the same results across different researchers, different regions, different types of tests. For example, when students are paid for each correct answer on a test, they do worse than the students who aren't paid at all. When a late fee is added to daycare pickup times, more parents are late. When copywriters are paid per headline, they produce more headlines than the unpaid copywriters, but the headlines perform worse when they're tested on readers. When money is tied to performance, weird things start to happen. But we all have money tied to our performance. For example, if you perform well at work, you get to keep your job. If you do really well, you might even get a raise. And if all of a sudden your boss removes your incentive to work, which is your salary, you're definitely not going back. And as business owners or career-oriented professionals, this is why it's important to understand how incentives work or how they don't work, because we're all incentivized in a variety of ways throughout the day. We have monetary incentives to perform well at work. You may even have a commission or bonus structure tied to your performance. We're incentivized to behave within certain societal norms, such as not screaming fire in a crowded building. We're incentivized by those around us to treat each other kindly or risk losing relationships. We're incentivized to raise our children right so that they become well-adjusted adults. We do respond well to some incentives, but not to others. So it's important for us to understand when to apply incentives to increase motivation and when your incentives may actually be undermining that performance that you're after. But before we get there, we need to develop a stronger understanding about what drives overall human behavior and our underlying motivations. So we're going to take a small detour here to dive a little bit deeper into overall behavioral analysis and how our understanding of human behavior and motivations has evolved over time. The first key figure in behavioral psychology was a guy you've probably heard of, Sigmund Freud. Freud was the first main figure to come along and build a blueprint for what he believed were the main drivers of human behavior and motivation. Initially, Freud put forth his Eros theory, or his life theory. Freud believed that the basic tenets of life itself are what drives our motivations, things like survival, pleasure, reproduction. He believed that any single behavior or action a person was performing could be attributed to at least one of these elements. He believed that humans were these semi-simple creatures that only wanted to enjoy themselves, have sex, and stay alive. But later in life, Freud came to believe that life instincts alone just couldn't explain all of the types of behaviors he was observing. So he amended his life theory to state that human behavior could also be driven by a second set of items, death drivers. These drivers were used by Freud to explain behaviors like aggression, risky decision-making, or could be used to explain why people continually relive past traumas or even suicide. He believed people were either motivated to live and thus set out to seek joy and pleasure, 
or they were truly motivated by death and sought out high-risk activities, believing that, hey, if we're all going to die anyway, let's have some fun while we're here. Together, Freud's life-and-death theory became known as the instinctual, or the Freudian approach to behavioral analysis, and acted as the first real attempt at applying a global explanation to why each person behaves the way they do. After Freud, there became a new school of thought in the 1930s. This was the belief that our behaviors are driven through the continual conditioning of our environments and by those around us. Meaning that as we're growing up or as we're going through our lives and our careers, we begin to form our behaviors based on how our behaviors have historically been reinforced by those around us, either positively or negatively. For example, if each morning you greet your colleagues as they come to work, they may tell you how nice it is to see you each morning. And if you enjoy that kind of feedback, that behavior becomes positively reinforced within you and you continue performing behaviors similar to that for as long as you receive a similar response or conditioning from those around you. On the other hand, if every time you try to share an opinion in a meeting and your boss laughs you off and doesn't take you seriously, you'll allow that conditioning to internalize itself in you. In the future, even at future jobs with new bosses, you'll be more reluctant to speak up because of how you've been conditioned in your past environments, whether you realize that's happening or not. This belief was popularized by Ivan Pavlov in his research on how easily humans and animals can be conditioned to perform, or to not perform, certain behaviors based on various forms of repeated external stimulus. For example, as simple as it sounds to us nearly a hundred years later, he was the first to demonstrate that over time and with consistent conditioning, the simple ringing of a bell can cause dogs to salivate because they've been conditioned to believe that when that bell rings, they're about to get a nice meal. While this sounds rudimentary, examples of how conditioning appears in our everyday lives can be seen in how children who grew up with trauma behave as adults, how veterans returning from war experience PTSD in response to loud noises, how actors respond to applause, how employees respond to horrible bosses and customers. This is why messy parents raise messy kids. It's why kids raised in a home with more autonomy and choice are better at regulating their emotions and behavior over time than kids raised in authoritarian environments. It's why employees who are given more control of how they approach their work are more likely to come up with creative solutions versus employees trained to follow a checklist. And it's why businesses managed by leaders with terrible attitudes tend to have terrible customer service departments. The environment and the things happening in it condition our behaviors and how we respond to them. This became known as stimulus response theory and was the prevailing theory for nearly 40 years. And then in the 1980s, another school of thought began taking over. And this is where we finally come full circle with the point of this episode. In the 1980s, our man with the puzzle, Edward Dietschy, came along and said, well, actually, our motivation to engage in a behavior comes from our inherent satisfaction with the behavior. Our behavior is not naturally tied to a desire for a reward or a specific outcome. Dietschy believed that at our core, we can simply enjoy an activity by seeing it as an opportunity to explore, to learn, and to realize our full potential, none of which need to be tied to a result, an incentive, survival, or life and death. He also believed that we have the ability to make choices and manage our own lives the way we want to, not because we were conditioned to behave in a certain way, either positively or negatively. And this became known as the self-determination theory. And being self-determined means that you feel in greater control over your life as opposed to being non-self-determined, which can leave you feeling that your life is controlled by others. At the center of the self-determination theory is what Dietschy called intrinsic motivation. He believed that if you're intrinsically motivated or naturally motivated to do something, you're exponentially more likely to go and do it. 
And the more you do it, the more likely you are to be good at doing it. Dichu went on to lay out three main elements that drive intrinsic motivation as autonomy, purpose, and mastery. Basically, people are intrinsically motivated to do something when they can act independently, feel that their efforts matter, and gain satisfaction from becoming more skilled at it. So think about you right now. You're listening to this podcast. If you're listening to it because you're intrinsically motivated to learn more about human psychology and decision-making in order to grow your business and increase sales, you're likely enjoying yourself and you're actually learning something. You had a choice to listen, autonomy. You have a purpose, which is growing your business. And you're improving your craft through the things you're learning in this episode, mastery. Now contrast intrinsic motivation with extrinsic motivation, which involves engaging in a behavior to earn external rewards or to avoid punishment. So if your boss forced you to listen to this podcast, or if you're not a leader in a business, if you have no motivation or care about human psychology, you've made it this far in the episode simply through persistence, and you've probably learned nothing. That's because you didn't come to this podcast independently. You don't have a purpose for listening, and you're not attaining mastery in your field by listening. You aren't intrinsically motivated to listen to this or to me. You're extrinsically motivated because your boss told you to come listen to this podcast. Think about Dichi's Soma puzzle. He measured the number of solutions people found. He measured how much time was spent on the puzzle. He also measured people's enjoyment with the puzzle. The group that wasn't incentivized, the group that wasn't paid for performance, spent more time on the puzzle even when the time was up. And during the time that they were working on the puzzle, they found more solutions than the incentivized group. At the end of the experiment, when all was said and done, they reported much higher levels of enjoyment of while they were doing the puzzle. They were intrinsically motivated. They enjoyed what they were doing. They were self-determined to solve the puzzle. By giving that second group an incentive, by paying them per solution, that group's attention shifted from their intrinsic motivation to an extrinsic reason, the money. Their perception of what they were doing shifted from, I'm doing this because I find it interesting, to I'm doing this because I get rewarded for it, not because I find it interesting. And when this intrinsic motivation shifted, their results declined. So what do we do with all of this? We have to pay our teams. We have to get paid for our work. We have to do our jobs. So what do we do? Well, we can start by looking at the ways we can use this new understanding of human behavior and then put it into action to motivate and incentivize not only our teams, but also ourselves to perform at a higher level. There's the standard belief that business owners have that monetary incentives are tied to an activity. And as those monetary incentives increase, performance will also increase. The reason goes that exerting effort is unpleasant and money is good. So more money equals more effort. As in, pay me and I'll work. Pay me more and I'll work better. But in order to believe this, you have to also believe that there's an ever-increasing linear correlation between money and effort, like on a line graph. As money increases, effort and motivation also increases. And while money can drive effort and motivation to a certain point, it can't be true forever. There has to be a point where more pay can't buy more motivation. If you were to believe in this ongoing linear correlation of pay and motivation, then that means if you ever want to make more money, you have to hold back your level of effort to keep more reserved for future sales. Or if you're already maximizing your effort, there's no room left to exchange money for more effort. There's no more left to give. As a personal example, there are periods of time where I'm putting everything I can into my work, 
all of my effort. There is no more effort to give or performance to add. I'm intrinsically motivated to behave in this way. I'm motivated to put in the maximum level of effort because I love what I do and I want to keep getting better at it. And I'm going to keep getting better at it whether someone's paying me or not. If extrinsic motivations show up in the form of clients wanting to pay me to do what I do, but do it for them, great. I do own a business, but I can't put in any more effort or find any more performance or try to get better just because some more dollar bills showed up. The best I can do is reallocate the effort that I'm already exerting into new places. I can't reserve effort and motivation. I can't wait for the money to show up for me to get out of bed every day. I can't refuse to put in the work and effort until someone pays me to work on their business or projects. I have to have the motivation and effort and be putting that effort out there every single day because that's why people want to pay me. If I don't have this intrinsic motivation to do the things that I do and continue to do them whether people are paying me or not, then I need to go find another line of work. I need to find something else to do. You need to find something else to do. If you're looking at your job, your career, your business, and saying, if people stop paying you, you're going to stop doing it. This is why turning hobbies into jobs is a dangerous proposition. You're replacing something that you're intrinsically motivated to do, something you love doing that you have an innate desire to keep doing, and then you start evaluating it through extrinsic factors, things like how much money it's making you or how others are evaluating your performance, how others are judging the product that you used to make for fun as a business. Then you start doing it less. You start enjoying it less. And now you have one more job and one less hobby. Oof. So that makes sense for us. But what about our teams? Because as business owners or career-oriented leaders and entrepreneurs, we naturally have an intrinsic motivation to continue growing our businesses and careers. But what about our entry and mid-level employees, the ones who aren't quite as intrinsically motivated to watch our businesses grow or who aren't super motivated yet for a promotion or to take on a large amount of responsibilities? How do we keep them motivated and working hard? How do we strike the balance between extrinsic motivations, which is what we pay them to show up every day, and their intrinsic motivations, which is the things that they want to do, the things that they love? If you're to believe Dietschy and the self-determination theory, motivation develops from within us. It's grounded in our basic human need to develop our skills, maximize our abilities, act based on our own free will, and to connect with others and to our environment. When those needs are being met, That's when people put in the hours and the effort and they work hard to master their craft and elevate their performance. A person's intrinsic motivation is not stoked by a threatening, demeaning boss who looks down on them and lobs insults at them on a daily basis. Motivation doesn't develop from high pressure, unreasonable and looming deadlines or annual performance reviews where they need to pander for a raise, internal politics or from overbearing SOPs and account managers. But this is lost on most bosses. Most bosses, whether good or bad intentioned, are creating environments that are killing the intrinsic motivations of the exceptionally talented people they're hiring. Because creating an environment based on extrinsic motivations is easy. It's easy to pay people a lot of money to work in toxic cultures. They just don't stay very long or produce very good work while they're there. It's easy to host a Taco Tuesday or add a Keurig machine and a ping pong table but it's shallow and short-term. Creating an atmosphere in which people feel free to act autonomously and creatively work together towards the organization's shared goals is much, much harder to do. But it's worth it. 
Because having intrinsically motivated people, people that want to be there and want to work hard, requires giving those people the autonomy and freedom of choice. It requires letting them look at each new challenge with a fresh set of eyes. It requires letting people pursue mastery in their craft, no matter how long it takes them to get there. It requires creating positive feedback loops and acknowledging the emotional labor that goes into the mastery of their craft. This is what drives people to want to continue doing the work they're motivated to do and to do it at a higher and higher level. This is the atmosphere that is hard to create, but it's well worth it for the business to create it. Because your team's best work, or even our best work, our most creative work, our best ideas, come when we feel that we're acting on our own accord with a clear purpose and we're mastering our craft, moving towards achieving the goals that we find meaningful to us. So if nothing else, here's what I want you to take away from this. Money follows effort. Money can motivate you, but money can't be allowed to control you. And profit follows people. When you as a business owner are putting profits before your people, you're creating a purely extrinsically motivated environment. The people in this authoritarian type of environment will underperform compared to your competitors who are hiring talent that actually wants to work inside their walls. When your competitors have the talent that is intrinsically motivated to produce high quality work, Your competitors will produce better results, and better results get better clients. Better clients create more profit, and those clients will go to your competitors. The money, the profits, the awards, they all come after you put in the work, after the effort. They are a byproduct of the hard work, not the other way around. Put in the effort, show the results, show what you're capable of doing, demonstrate the mastery you have over your craft. Because when you become overly motivated by money, you'll lose the intrinsic motivation it takes to actually be the best at what you do. You won't have the motivation to put in the time it takes to be the best. You won't have what it takes to be truly engaged in what you're doing or have the ability to master your craft. Without intrinsic motivation, without mastery, you can't get the money. This is Dallas McLaughlin, and that was another episode of Unconsidered. If you made it this far, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. If you're interested, there's links to all of the research and a full episode transcript at my website, dallasmclaughlin.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your podcast platform of choice and consider sharing it with a friend of yours. Until next time, keep working hard and have fun.